Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Word has gotten out. We're starting a new book tonight. I was going to try to keep it a secret, but my secretaries are like, wait a minute, we got to put it on the web. we got to let, you know, push notifications. we got to get uh, the Goodyear blimp. So I figure, okay, I surrender. I'm going to just tell you, all right? So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Well, let me just say this. The book of Daniel is one of the most remarkable books written by one of the most remarkable men in the Bible. The author, Daniel, is remarkable because of his commitment to God, flat out, and the character of his life. He's only one of two main characters in the Bible of which nothing evil is spoken of, the other being Joseph in the book of Genesis. I'm excluding, of course, the Lord Jesus. But Daniel was such a, a man of integrity and walked so closely with God that when his enemies tried to find some wrongdoing in him or that he had done to use against him, we read in chapter 6, verse 4, So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Guys, he was such a godly man who walked with God with such unwavering loyalty that God himself put him in the same company with Noah and Job. You'll read about that in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Of course, Job was called at that time that he lived the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And Noah was one, that, uh, was one of eight that God saved at, when he destroyed the earth with the flood because of the wickedness on the earth. That's pretty good company to be in, okay, uh, to be placed with Noah and Job. But Daniel was that kind of guy. Uh, Daniel grew up during the revival that took place in Judah under the leadership of King Josiah. And uh, he and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were all taken to Babylon in the first deportation in 606 B.C. Daniel and his friends were about maybe 16, 17 years old, uh, when they were taken to Babylon, uh, where Daniel spent the next 70 or 80 years. He saw the entire captivity. The captivity was 70 years. Uh, Daniel saw the whole thing. And when the Jews came back in 536 B.C., he was too old to make the journey, but he was there during the whole captivity. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So he lived at the same time, although Jeremiah was much older, of course, uh, but he was somewhat of a, a legend in his own time. Uh, Ezekiel mentions him three times in his book. And uh, let me just say this. There are four words that characterize Daniel's life. Purpose, prayer, purity, and prophecy. Purpose. He purposed in his heart to walk with God and to be faithful to him no matter what. Prayer. Well, he was a man of prayer who continued to pray even when it threatened his life, purity. He stayed pure to his God even in a polluted environment like Babylon. And prophecy. God revealed to Daniel some of the most incredible and specific prophecies in the Bible. In fact, with regard to prophecy, the prophecies in the book of Daniel are so incredibly precise and detailed that critics have long tried to say, Daniel didn't write this book. It was written by uh, an imposter who called himself Daniel after all these events took place. Somewhere around uh, 160 B.C., after all these events had taken place. And the main reason that the critics denied Daniel that Daniel wrote this book is because, you ready for this? They don't believe in prophecy. Okay, It's a compelling argument, isn't it? You see, many critics of the Bible adhere to the philosophy of materialism. And as such, they don't believe in the spiritual or the supernatural. And so based on their belief system, the book of Daniel can't be prophetic because that's supernatural. And, you know, we all know the supernatural doesn't exist. Therefore, it must have been written by an imposter after the events took place. But that's ridiculous for these reasons. First of all, the Septuagint. The Septuagint, the word means 70. You remember how that the Hebrew had become kind of a dead language, like Latin, okay? It was only spoken by uh, the religious, the, the, the priests and all. 
the common Jew didn't even know uh, Hebrew anymore, couldn't speak it. So in 70, excuse me, so in uh, about 280 BC, the Jewish hierarchy hired 70 scholars to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That's 280 years before Christ. And Daniel, the book of Daniel, was included in the Septuagint. Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel as recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and said that Daniel was a prophet. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and then, of course, he went on. And finally, as I said, Ezekiel mentions Daniel three times in his book, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 4, verse 20, and then chapter 28, verse 3. And as we said, Ezekiel and Daniel lived at the same time, the 6th century B.C. So, obviously, Daniel was alive at this time, and... Um, we know that God spoke mightily to Daniel and through Daniel. Now, guys, the book of Daniel divides itself right down the middle. The first six chapters are historical, and the last six contain visions and prophecy. The key verse of the book is chapter 2, verse 44. Let me read it to you. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You see, guys, the theme of the book of Daniel is how the righteous kingdom of God is going to someday replace the corrupt kingdoms of man. Human government is corrupt. It always has been, and it always will be. Because as somebody said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. The only leader who can lead in absolute righteousness without the slightest bit of corruption is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will do that when he comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth. We see this, the culmination of redemptive history mentioned in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Guys, that is the culmination of redemptive history. Jesus, paradise lost is now paradise regained. The devil, well, he deceived Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit and man fell. The redeemer came, crushed the serpent, said, and here we see a future time when he will come back to take his throne. He has bought and paid for this world at Calvary's cross. He has not taken possession of it yet. He will someday, and we believe someday soon. Amen? Amen. Now, as we study this book, you're going to see that Daniel's life personifies the adage, blossom wherever God plants you. Blossom wherever God plants you. You know, this concept that I, I just can't grow and flourish in my walk with God when my circumstances and surroundings are so negative and worldly. Cindy had a woman come up to her uh, at a women's conference and basically say that very thing. I'm divorcing, she's a Christian supposedly, said, I'm divorcing my husband and I'm leaving my family because my husband's an unbeliever and my kids are all worldly and I, you know, I can't grow with the Lord in these circumstances. Well, you know, Daniel didn't ascribe to that kind of thinking. Daniel was a man who purposed in his heart, as we're going to see, that he would not defile himself with the pleasures of Babylon, which is a type of the world, but would remain faithful to his God no matter what. Guys, if Daniel could remain faithful to God in Babylon, that any of us can serve and be faithful to God wherever he plants us. Because Babylon is synonymous with the world and evil, so much so that the final world-governing empire and the ecclesiastical empire that the uh, Antichrist and false prophet are going to bring to the world, they're called Mystery Babylon. So, you know, if Daniel could live for the Lord in Babylon, you know what? God says, I don't want to hear it. You can't live for me where you are. <laughs> Guys, as, as we read and study this book, May we accept the challenge the Holy Spirit has placed here for all of us who are the people of God. You ready? Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, let me say this. The fact that the Babylonians came against Judah and conquered it should have been no surprise to anyone living in the southern kingdom of Judah at that time. You see, God had sent prophets to them for decades, warning them that if they didn't repent of their idolatry, immorality, and injustice towards the poor, well, that he was going to send the Babylonians against them as an instrument of its judgment. In fact, as far back as a century before Jerusalem fell, the prophet Isaiah was proclaiming this message. You can read about this in Isaiah chapters 13, 21, and 39. He was proclaiming this message about Babylon, Babylonians coming to um, judge God's people. His contemporary Micah also shouted this warning. I'll just read you one verse, Micah 4, verse 10. God said through the prophet Micah, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. You know, when God revealed this very thing to Habakkuk, he couldn't understand why the Lord would use godless Babylon or the godless Babylonians to judge his people. I mean, he said, Lord, we're bad, but they're worse than we are. Why would you use them to judge us? Because God's people had his truth. God's people knew the true and living God. These pagans didn't. With knowledge comes what? Responsibility. God always holds those people more accountable who know the truth and don't live it than he does those who don't know the truth and don't live it. They're still going to have to be judged, but their judgment will be much less severe than those who knew the truth of God, who came to church, heard the word of God every week, but then went out and didn't live it at all. That's why the Bible says judgment begins where? At the house of God. Because we know better. We have God's truth. But when God revealed what he was planning on doing and bringing the Babylonians to judge Judah, Habakkuk was beside himself. Listen to what God said to Habakkuk, though. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 he said, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. I'm bringing the Babylonians against my people. Now, guys, this was a, uh, a message that Jeremiah spent most of his ministry weeping over. He's called the weeping prophet. Forty-six years he preached to the people of Judah, and nobody repented. And most of what he was preaching was judgments coming. Please, people of God, turn now quickly while there's still time. The Babylonians are coming. One example of God's warning to the people through Jeremiah is found in Jeremiah 20. If you turn there. I mean, the whole book of Jeremiah is talking about God's coming judgment. But Jeremiah 20, starting with verse 4. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I would deliver all the wealth of this city, all of its produce, all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. One author said, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name, end quote. Now, guys, before we go on in Daniel, let's fill in some of the history that leads up to the opening verses of Daniel chapter 1. As I said earlier, Daniel grew up during the reign of one of Judah's best kings, godly King Josiah. And uh, even though Josiah tried to lead the nation back to God, 
by refurbishing the temple. The temple hadn't been used in I don't know how many years. In fact, they were using it for a giant storage shed, okay? That's how far the people had gotten from God. This beautiful temple Solomon built, uh, it, was, it was just being used like a big storage locker, okay? It was full of junk. And when Josiah came to the throne at age 8, raised by a godly priest who no doubt instilled in him a love for the Lord, at 16, it says, he began to seek the Lord, and by the time he was 20, he launched a great revival or a reformation throughout the entire nation. He paid to have men go into the temple and begin to clean it out so they could begin to work, use it again for the worship of God. And as they're in there cleaning out the temple, lo and behold, they found the Word of God. They found uh, the, um, the law of God. They hadn't seen it, okay? And they started reading it. And they read how that, if my people turn from me, and worship false gods. Here's what I'm going to do and the judgments I'm going to bring. And they were like, oh my God, ripped their clothes. They, they ran to the king, showed him the scroll. He ripped his clothes. They called for a prophet. There was a prophetess in the land. She came and, and the Lord delivered a message through her saying, Josiah, because your heart was tender, I won't bring the calamity in your day. But these people, they're going to be judged because of all the evil of their doings. But your heart is tender, you want to honor me, and so in your days I will not bring this judgment. And so Josiah had a good heart, he refurbished the temple, he reinstituted or restored the public worship of God, but guys, it was, his efforts were just too little too late, the people were too far gone. Now during the time of Josiah's reign, and this is all background, you have to understand this, during the time of Josiah's reign, the Assyrian Empire was declining in strength, while the Babylonian Empire was gaining in strength. This led to the Assyrians, uh, this led the Assyrians to make an alliance with the Egyptians, whose king at that time was Pharaoh Necho. We read in 2 Kings 23, verse 29, that the Egyptian army was on its way to fight alongside the Assyrians against the Babylonians, but to get to the Assyrians to help them, they had to cross through Israel. That was the bridge between uh, Egypt, Syria, Assyria, you had to go through uh, Israel. And as the Egyptian army, on its way to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians, traveling through Israel, for some strange reason, Josiah decides to fight against the Egyptians. I, I don't know what he was thinking. We, we don't know. We don't know if he felt he was doing God's work. I, I probably did. We picked the story up in 2 Chronicles 35, if you turn there. 2 Chronicles 35, starting with verse 20. It says, After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, so the temple has been refurbished, and the people are worshiping God once again. You know the sad thing about it, guys, a footnote. Because the people had not worshipped God for at least a generation, maybe longer, when, when they started up the worship of God, you know, the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the temple was... Uh, refurbished and was was like brand new guess what everybody went to temple because it was a novelty it's a novelty it was cool to worship the lord at this time every cool person was doing it the king's doing it you know this is neat let's all go worship god but god knew the heart god knew that their hearts really weren't given over to him they were going through the motions they were going to church <laughs> But their heart really, they, were, they really didn't have a heart to change anything. But they thought because they were going to temple, somehow that brought God's special blessing and protection upon them. So you know what God did? He sent the prophet Jeremiah to stand outside the temple and he, he began to shout at the people. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Don't go around saying, oh, the temple of the Lord. As if you're going to be protected because you go into this temple. God wants your hearts not your religious activity. And so you see, though, even, a lot of people see it was the revival under Josiah. It really wasn't a revival, it was a reformation. A reformation surface cleanses a person's life. A revival touches the heart. In any true revival, the outcome is changed hearts, changed lives. You know, uh, just things are different. Holiness is the result. So that's, that was not what was going on, though. Josiah meant well. He was a good guy. But the people, you know, it was all a novelty and... Uh, yeah, let's go to church. Let's go to temple. That's cool, you know. But uh, their hearts were not uh, really in it. So in Second Chronicles 35, 
Starting with verse 20, after this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. So Josiah is going out against Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. Again, why? We're not sure. But the Pharaoh sent messengers to him saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God, your God, is the idea, one of the strangest passages in the Old Testament. Okay? For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now, if it wasn't for the outcome of this battle, we would think the guy was lying just to put off Josiah and to get him out of the way. But apparently, because of the way things worked out, this king had really heard from the Lord. Will God speak to a pagan king? Sure, why not? He spoke through a pagan high priest, didn't he, in the days of Jesus. But uh, you remember how they through the high priest, uh, you know, he, he prophesied. Remember that? And uh, so, you know, God will, will use the donkey at one point. Well, he still uses donkeys today. Uh, but, but you understand that God can do whatever he wants to do. All right? And, um, but the king of Egypt said, look, what, I got no beef with you. What, are you. what are you picking a fight with me for? Your God called me to fight with the, with the Babylonians. That's where I'm going. Don't stand in my way, right? Verse 22, nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo, and the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. He's only 39 years old and a good king. It just teaches us that, you know what? Don't get involved in somebody else's fight. Okay? All right? Uh, you know what I'm saying? If, if two people have something against you, you, you know, pray and maybe you can, you can help both, but, but don't get in the middle and start to fight with one over the other. Just, you know what I'm saying? It shortened Josiah's life. That's the point, all right? Now, after the death of Josiah, his son Jehoahaz reigned in his place. So Second Chronicles 36, verse 1. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt opposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Now it's a little hard to keep these names straight, okay? Uh, so Jehoahaz is out, Jehoiakim is in, and Necho took Jehoahaz's brother and carried him off to Egypt. Now guys, here's where the history of Israel is recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, intersects with the history of Israel as recorded in Daniel chapter 1. So let me read farther here in, in 2 Chronicles 36, and then we'll go back to Daniel 1. Verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters that carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. The year was 606 B.C., and this was the first deportation as Nebuchadnezzar not only took articles of gold from the temple back to Babylon, but also King Jehoiakim, Daniel, his three friends, and thousands of others as well. As we read, Jehoiakim was replaced by his son Jehoiachin, but he also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar once again besieged Jerusalem. Uh, he didn't destroy the city at that time, but the king, his mother, all the vessels of the house of the Lord were taken away to Babylon. Listen, 
along with an even larger group of captives. This was the second deportation, which included at this time, Ezekiel was now taken to Babylon. Ezekiel uh, lived his life there and conducted all of his ministry pretty much uh, in Babylon. He was an exilic prophet, one who prophesied in the exile. He was in Babylon. Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem. The king uh, had heard that he was trying to reason with the people not to oppose uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, that Jeremiah was trying to reason with the people of Judah just to surrender as God had told him to tell the people. And when Nebuchadnezzar found out about it, he, uh, he really uh, liked Jeremiah and said, look, uh, you can stay. Jeremiah was an old man, so uh, he stayed uh, there in Jerusalem when most of the others were carried away captive. Now, again, this was 597, the second deportation. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar set up Zedekiah, who was the uncle of Jehoiachin as king. But guess what? He also eventually rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Well, guys, by this time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough, and he came back to Jerusalem with great fury. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers. These would be his prophets rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So it says that God had given his people a lot of time to repent. He sent prophet after prophet who would rise early and go and tell the people, repent, judgment is coming. We go on in verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon." Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So Nebuchadnezzar, we learn from another passage, uh, left only a small remnant of the poorest of the people, to tend the land, lest it would be overrun. Uh, so he left a small group of people there uh, to tend the land, to tend the vines, okay, and took everyone else pretty much back to Babylon. And then what they did was, what they would do is they would take uh, most of the population out of an area they conquered, sprinkle them throughout the Babylonian Empire, and they would take others from places they had conquered and put them uh, in place of the people that had been taken. So now you had foreigners occupying your land. Um, it made it very difficult because you, you were so few in number that spoke the same language, there weren't enough of you to organize a rebellion. That was the idea, to demoralize the people you had conquered by uh, you know filling their land with foreigners who didn't speak the language, didn't keep the same cultural things and so on. And, uh, but what wound up happening, and i just give you another footnote, these Jews that were left, many of them married these foreigners, and they had offspring. And these offspring were half Jew, half Gentile. And they became what was known as the defiled Samaritans. And so even in the day of Jesus, you had how the Jews would not even go through the land of Samaria because they considered it defiled because they were half-breeds. Yet God loved them. Jesus went up there and talked to a woman by the well, and a whole revival broke out. Uh, in her town because of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't, the Lord is no respecter of persons. Okay, But, but that's a little background that le leads us into the New Testament. But Nebuchadnezzar left only a, a small remnant of the poorest of the land as vine dresses and farmers. And guys, this was the third and final deportation that took place in 586 B.C. But going back to the first time Nebuchadnezzar came against the land in 606, we read again Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, and he carried into the land of Shinar to the house 
which he carried into the land of Shinar. This would be about Nebuchadnezzar, of course. He carried articles from the house of God to uh, the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, history shows that this was a common practice of Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever he would conquer a land, he would go into whatever temple was there, to whatever God they worshipped, and would take some of the holy things out. And he would take it back to the temple of his main God and put it in there. That was, in his mind, here's what he was thinking. Our gods are stronger because we conquered other people, their land. We conquered their land. Their gods couldn't protect them. Our gods are stronger. So they would take, he would take stuff out of their temples, bring it to his temple as a way of saying, uh, now his gods over here, or these gods are subservient to our gods, but also, of course, to me, okay, since uh, they looked at uh, the king of Babylon like a, a god figure. Um, so uh, that's what the history records was very common for Nebuchadnezzar to do. Verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs. Let me stop there. For years, critics of the book of Daniel claimed that the book was a forgery and historically untrustworthy because history never recorded anyone by the name of Ashpenaz in the history of Babylon. They never found anybody named Ashpenaz in any of the records of Babylon. So the critics, again, uh, wrote him off. Ashpenaz wrote him off as just another fictional character in this fantasy book called the book of Daniel because they didn't believe Daniel really wrote it and so on and so forth. However, during the latter part of the 20th century, the name Ashpenaz was found on the monuments of ancient Babylon. In fact, they are now today in the museum, the Berlin Museum. And on this artifact, they found the inscription, Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So, you know, archaeologists are our best friend. Every time an archaeologist plunges a spade somewhere in biblical lands, they come up with things that prove the Bible to be true. But again, Daniel 1, verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now, this is very important. The Babylonians made, made it their practice to take, listen, the best looking, the brightest, the most gifted young men from the nations that they had conquered to put into a training program where they would serve then eventually the king as his advisors and wise men. And by taking the cream of the crop from every nation they conquered, Babylon was always guaranteed to have the best of the best in their leadership. Brilliant. Of course, for these young men to be loyal to the king, they needed to be thoroughly assimilated into Babylonian culture. And to accomplish this, the Babylonians focused their indoctrination, that's really what it was to them, indoctrination, on three key areas of conditioning. Okay, I'll give them to you real quick. First, mental conditioning. We just read verses 3 and 4. You see, they wanted these new recruits to think differently. So they taught them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. In other words... They taught them the ways of the world. They, thought, they taught them to think like they thought. We as Christians would say, well, the devil wants us to think the way he has programmed the world, right? The same was true with the Babylonians, okay? They were heavily being used by the devil, all right? Uh, although God was using them too, but they were a very demonic culture, as we're going to see. When they would conquer these uh, lands... Again, they would, they would interview people. They had a whole process where they would have these young men. They would pick the strongest, best looking, and they would come up before these interviewers, I guess, and they would ask them a series of questions. They would put them through a battery of tests, and they would find the brightest of the people that they had conquered, and they wanted to bring them into this Babylonian training program to make them advisors and wise men, but they had to indoctrinate them first, first mentally to condition the way they thought so that they thought the way the Babylonians thought. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Paul says, Now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. 
Then your faith will be strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overthrow, uh, excuse me, overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Of course, we know that Paul said to the Romans that, look, once you get saved, don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about this Sunday. Of course, all the years of our life before we were saved, we didn't realize we were being brainwashed by the devil. The things we watched uh, on television, the, uh, even the, the news, each school. Uh, God bless the Christian teachers in public school, but there's a lot of non-Christian teachers who don't realize they've been indoctrinated in certain ways of thinking, and they're indoctrinating the kids. And so Paul says, look, once you get saved, you have to kind of deprogram yourself, get unbrainwashed. How? By filling your mind with the truth of God. It will push out the lies of the devil and allow you to have a foundation for which the Holy Spirit can use to help you to walk with God, because now you know the heart of God through the Word of God. So we see that this is something that secular schools, especially colleges, endeavor to do with our young people, to get them to think the way of the world, which they don't realize is the way of the God of this world. Okay. So first of all, mental conditioning. Secondly, they would put them through a kind of a social conditioning. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now guys, as I just said, and I just got ahead of myself, but the Bible admonishes us not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the word of God. See, as Christians, the only one we are to be dependent on and completely loyal to is God Almighty. By giving these young trainees everything in life they needed to live, listen, it was conditioning them to be dependent upon and therefore loyal to the state. This is what many in our own country want. They want to replace God with government. They're secular people. They're materialists. They don't think spiritually at all. And uh, they think religion is evil. Religion is the, is the opiate of the people. Religion keeps people down. It keeps them superstitious and unenlightened and so on. So you have many people in our government who try, in our country who are trying to bring about a completely secular society. Uh, get rid of God, okay, and make government God. Look to government to be your provider and the one who takes care of you from cradle to grave kind of a thing. But listen to me. Cultural indoctrination was key to assimilating these young men into Babylonian culture by, listen, changing their social ideas, their cultural ideas. What they would do is they would change the way they dressed, uh, they would change the, the food they ate, the, the language they spoke, and the customs they um, were taught to embrace. By doing this, you were completely reprogramming them to be loyal to a whole new cultural mindset. All right? So the mental conditioning, social conditioning, and the third one was religious conditioning, which we see in verses 6 and 7. But let me just say this before we read those verses. Religious conditioning is probably the most powerful way to assimilate a foreigner into a culture. If you can condition someone from a foreign land to embrace the gods of the culture you're trying to assimilate them into, well, they will be loyal to that new culture for life. This is what Rome did. When Rome conquered an area, they would leave troops there for so long, but the idea was, and, and most Romans knew that Caesar wasn't God. Some of the Caesars bought into it, but most of them knew that, that Caesar really wasn't a god. Caesar Augustus, August, the August one. Uh, that was a, a title of divinity, all right? And what the Romans wanted to do is that when they conquered a land, they wanted the people of that land to look to Caesar as being their main god. And if they did that, they didn't care what gods they worshipped after that. So every year, every Roman citizen was required by Roman law to stand in front of a bust of Caesar and pledge allegiance to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. If you did that, you can worship any... The Romans were polytheists. They didn't care what gods you worshipped. But here was the idea. If they could get you to really buy into and embrace Caesar as your god, well, they could pull their troops out and use their troops somewhere else. Because the people are never going to rebel against their gods. And that was the idea. It worked pretty effectively. Well, the Babylonians before the Romans were doing this. They understood this. And so right off the bat, 
uh, they gave all the young men that were brought into this training program new names. <laughs> names that contained the name of one of their Babylonian deities. In this way, every time somebody said your name, which contained the name of one of these deities, it forced you to identify with this deity. And the idea was after a while you would so identify with this God that this God would become part of you. It would become your God. And you would be assimilated into Babylonian culture and thinking. This is brilliant, brutal, but brilliant, okay? To steal a culture away from a people. What they didn't understand was the people of God, the Jews, were very committed to their God. And so as hard as Babylon tried, they couldn't beat the God of Israel out of these four young men, as we're going to see. So verse 6, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Jehovah is my God, is my judge. It was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince, or Bel protect his life. Bel being one of the chief gods of the Babylonians. The name Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And it was changed to Shadrach, which means may rock the sun god, illuminate or brighten. The name Mishael, very beautiful name in Hebrew, means who is like God. Well, they gave him the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the moon god. And then the name Azariah means the Lord is my help. And it was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, or Nego, uh, which was the fire god. So they gave these four young Hebrew teenagers new names, uh, but they could have named them anything they wanted, and you know what? They were not going to be indoctrinated away from their God. Well, verse 8 is one of the pivotal verses, I think the pivotal verse in the chapter. But Daniel purpose in his heart. Now, they've got them into this training program. They're giving them special meat and wine and delicacies. I mean, really pampering these guys, uh, putting them in, into this intensive three-year training program, Right? But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Look, once again, this is the first of four things that characterized Daniel's life. He purposed in his heart. Listen, he purposed in his heart. He would not defile himself. Let me stop there. The heart, guys, is the seat of conviction. The seat of conviction. So living a life of purity and commitment to God has to start in the heart. All Christians, listen, believe that purity is good and important. Unfortunately, very few today have made it a conviction of their heart. See, a belief is something that's rooted in your mind, your thinking. A conviction is something that's rooted in your heart, and guys, that's much stronger. You can believe something is good, but not do anything about it. But when something is a conviction, you've brought it into your heart. It's something that you have, believe in with all your heart, something that you will fight for. And this is the idea, all right? A conviction is much stronger. You cannot live for God in this world any more than Daniel could live for God in his world of Babylon if you don't have a conviction. That serving God is something that is non-negotiable. It's something that I have purposed I'm going to do. I'm going to be loyal to my God. I don't care who is saying what or doing what. I'm not, I don't care if everyone's doing it. I'm not doing it. Because I am committed to my God. It's something I've purposed. in my. It's a conviction I have. See? I mean, Daniel understood that living for God is not something that's going to happen by accident. It's only something that will happen on purpose on purpose and guess what daniel didn't look at his walk with god as a matter of locality okay uh well i'm not in jerusalem anymore you know he didn't adopt the mindset that many would adopt later on you know when in rome do as the romans do that was not the mindset of daniel his his relationship with god was not based on a locality like many based their whole relationship with god on a locality 
When they're in church, they act holy and righteous. When they leave church, everything gets left behind. Because you know what? God is in church. When I go to church, I act like a Christian. But when I leave church and go out into the world, God knows for me to make a living and sell the product or do whatever I'm doing for a living, I have to sometimes fudge the facts. I have to misrepresent the product. I have to do what I have to do to make the sale, we'll say. Well, that's not how Daniel lived. Daniel didn't care if he was in Jerusalem or 700 miles away in Babylon. His God was everywhere he went, and everywhere he went, he was going to live for God. He would uh, purpose in his heart that he was going to honor God with his life. Daniel 1 verse 9. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. <laughs> These um, ancient kings, and Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. He was an absolute ruler. He answered to nobody. He did whatever he wanted. That is not the way it was in successive or succeeding kingdoms, as we're going to see, okay, in chapter 2. But he was a true, absolute ruler. And Ashpenaz is saying, well, you know, you want to reject the king's meat, his delicacies, his wine, and eat what, vegetables? If you're looking scrawny, uh, when the king calls for you, it's my head, literally. Okay? So Daniel said in verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. So everyone else got to eat the hamburgers and the ribs and uh, drink the wine, and Daniel and his buddies just drank, ate vegetables and drank water. Now, can I just stop here and say this? There are those who take from this that this is the way we are supposed to eat all the time. It's called the Daniel diet, right? And look, if you want to live on vegetables and water, God bless you. <laughs> God bless you. I'm just saying that God did not prohibit us from eating meat in general. Um, that's not something God ever forbid his people from doing. He never called them to be vegetarians, okay? But right here for this purpose, we're going to see Daniel and his buddies asked if they could have a special diet of just vegetables and water. And Ashpenaz was a little nervous, but Daniel said, look, why don't you test us for 10 days and see how we look compared to the other young guys in the program. So he consented. And verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their features, Daniel and his buddies, appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away from their portion of delicacies and the wine and, excuse me, uh, took away the delicacies and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, all right? Now, of course, this was God, you know, that God was honoring uh, their commitment. First of all, let me just say this. The meat that they were given to eat was no doubt sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. That's what they would do. They would bring these animals in and they would sacrifice them to these deities and then, of course, cut them up. And, uh, you know, and then the king, of course, got the choicest cuts, his household, palace, and these, uh, these trainees. Um, so, but they, it was these, this meat had been offered to these uh, Babylonian idol deities. And so for them as Jewish believers to eat this stuff would have defiled them. That's why they didn't want to eat the meat. Now, nowhere in the law of God did God forbid the Jews from drinking wine, except if they entered into what was called a Nazarite vow. You can read about this in number six. But for a period of time, sometimes it was 30, 60, or even 90 days, if they wanted to really draw close to God, they would make this vow. Okay, They wouldn't cut their hair. And as God said, they were to abstain from everything associated with the vine. So not only could you not drink wine, you couldn't drink grape juice, you couldn't eat grapes or grape seeds or grape leaves, nothing that came from the vine. The idea was you were withdrawing completely from those things to serve God and to draw close to God. Maybe that's what they had done. I think more probably, more probably, um, it could be that they knew all of this food had been dedicated to the gods of Babylon 
which was why Daniel and his buddies refused to eat it. That's more probable than what was going on here. Anyways, they were trying to be separate. Okay? They were trying to be separate, and God honored their desire for consecration, and he gave them great health, even though they only lived on vegetables and water. And so we read in verse 17, As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them, uh, among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued, continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So these four young guys were so ten times better than all the other wise guys in Babylon that they had a special place uh, with the king. I mean, I got the impression from this that they really were the closest to the king as advisors and wise men. And because they were so brilliant, it seems that the king would turn to them first, okay, many times. Um, but um, we'll leave it there, okay? Uh, pick it up, God willing, in chapter 2. And uh, this is going to be a very interesting as we get into chapter 2. And, uh, well, I won't, uh, you've probably already read ahead, so that's good, but uh, we will, God willing, look at that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And, Lord, we thank you that by it we can walk in this dark world and not stumble because it's our light. And, Father, we pray that you would give us grace in a world that's flooded with Satan's lies, and they are everywhere. That, Lord, you give us a great hunger for your truth. That we would feed on it daily, walk in its light daily. And Lord, because of it, we would not stumble in darkness. We would know lies uh, immediately. We would not be taken in by worldly philosophies that sound high-sounding, but really are demonic in nature. And Lord, give us grace that we might be a light to others in darkness, that they would be delivered from the, the devil's lies and brought into your marvelous light. So, Lord, give us all grace to be Daniels, that we would live in this corrupt world in a consecrated way, that we would purpose in our hearts that we will not, we will not be like the world because we're in the world, but that we will remain separate from the world as lights in the darkness. Give us the grace to do that, Lord, that people might look at us and see that we're different because your spirit lives within us. And we thank you, Father. We ask you to continue blessing these studies in the book of Daniel. In Jesus' precious name, amen.